Hello there, my name is Brad Spilka, and you are listening to the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcast. I have therefore considered it essential to relieve General MacArthur so that there would be no doubt or confusion as to the real purpose and aim of our policy. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against Al-Qaeda terrorist training camps. We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence by the military-industrial complex. U.S. warships and planes launched the opening salvo of Operation Iraqi Freedom. After years of devastating cuts, we're now rebuilding our military like we never have before. Hello and welcome back to Thank You for Your Service, a hard look at American civil-military affairs from the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts. I'm Nick Pereso. And I'm Thomas Krasnation. Today, we're excited to bring you an interview we recorded a few weeks ago with Michelle Flournoy. From 2009 to 2012, Ms. Flournoy served as the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. In that role, she acted as a principal policy advisor to the Secretary of Defense, helping develop national security and defense policy. Prior to her service as Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, Ms. Flournoy was an appointee in the Department of Defense under the Clinton administration. After that, she was a research professor at the National Defense University, worked at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and co-founded the Center for a New American Security. During the 2016 election, she was considered to be a potential pick for Hillary Clinton's Secretary of Defense. Jim Mattis offered her the position of Deputy Secretary of Defense in the Trump administration, but she ultimately turned that offer down. She is now a principal at West Exec Advisors, which she co-founded with a team of other former national security policymakers. We spoke about her career at the Pentagon and how the expanding nature of warfare affects civil-military relations and her take on the American military-industrial complex. Ms. Flournoy, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for your service. We really appreciate you taking the time. I'm happy to be with you. So we know that you had a long career in the national security field working at the Pentagon and at various think tanks. We were wondering if you could talk about what motivated you to get involved in that line of work. Well, I graduated from graduate school at the height of the Cold War, and it seemed to me during that period of nuclear saber rattling that if we didn't solve that problem um, with arms control and other nonproliferation measures, we weren't going to be around to solve anything else. So I dove into that uh, subject matter which uh, and worked in the think tank world for about a decade and then had my first opportunity to go into government in the Clinton administration. Um, and, but by that time, I'd really been bitten by the policy bug, and I decided that the, the thing I wanted to do was to help inform U.S. national security policy and uh, contribute to our security, whether it was from the outside um, or uh, on the inside. Was there anything in particular that surprised you about working at the Pentagon? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, my first job in the Pentagon, I was, I think, barely... Uh, just in my early 30s. And so I, when I walked in, I had a number of strikes against me. I was young, I was civilian, uh, I was female, and I was a Democrat. <laughs> and uh, But I managed to recover from the, all of those uh, disadvantages um, by you know really taking advantage of a culture that is a meritocracy. And if you can demonstrate excellence and show that you're competent and contribute to the mission, 
people get over the packaging. You know, they get over all their, their uh, many people would get over their assumptions about or their biases uh, that might have been made it a little difficult for you at the beginning. I'm really curious, actually, about what you said when you said that it was a disadvantage coming in as a Democrat. Like, talk about that a little, a little more. I think political appointees are, in general, are seen as kind of temporary folks who come through with different administrations and leave. Um, I think at the time, the Democrats did not have a strong rep- reputation on national security. And so there were lots of assumptions about, well, you know, we can't expect much from these folks. They'll probably come in and try to just cut defense. They don't really know what they're doing. They don't have familiarity with the military. Um, and one of the things that, you know, saved me besides, you know, trying my best to be competent and good at my job um, and having some wonderful mentors was the fact that I was, I did have some connection to the military. My father had served in World War II, was an Army Air Corps veteran. My husband uh, had been a Navy surface warfare officer. He was a veteran. And so it was like, oh, okay, well, you're one of, you're, you're kind of in the family. We'll, we'll, we'll accept you. So I, I had that going for me. So when we talk about the idea of civil-military relations, uh, I think we often think about like overarching norms that are used to preserve a healthy society. But can you talk about kind of the the personal day to day ground level civil military relations and intera- interactions that you experienced working at the Pentagon? Yeah, I, I for the most part, I I think that I I experienced a tremendous respect for the chain of command, for direction from the top, um, for the Secretary of Defense, and so forth. So. I was very fortunate to work for work for a total of five different secretaries. But um, when I became in a more senior position uh, and in the Obama administration, I worked for Gates and Panetta, and both of them really empowered me as sort of their representative on a whole range of issues. And so people were responding to me as you know the office I was occupying, and they were responding to me favorably because because the secretary had been, you know, clearly empowered me in that position. And so I found, you know, there was tremendous respect. Um, What I found uh, when there was friction, it was really where the military folks in, in, in war college or in their professional military education has been, had been taught a certain very orderly, deductive, uh, predictable system. And then, but the civilians had probably never been taught that and we're operating on a different set of priorities. And sometimes those two things, we, you know, you found the military and the civilian folks mutually disappointing each, each other's expectations because they came into the situation with an, different ideas about what civil military relations were supposed to be. So we recently had the opportunity to talk to General McChrystal mm-hmm. and his, his story in a lot of ways exemplifies some of those frictions that you were just talking about. And he actually said to us how he thinks that a lot of the decisions made during the time period he was in charge of ISAF would have been better if there were just a better, um, more socially healthy, like working relationship between the military and civilians. Um, Did you ever get the sense that like that lack of just, you know, civilians and military getting along and socializing with each other, that that influenced national security decisions or policymaking? Um, I do think there there are a couple of things um, 
that contributed to what, what General McChrystal was talking about. You do have pe- civilians coming in that have had no prior contact with military. I was fortunate. I you know, had military members in my family. I had worked in six years in the Clinton administration very closely. I, you know, knew other military folks through think tanks. I, you know, so I, and I, I'd invested time in understanding the institutions, the culture, how they do business, what they value. So I was fortunate, but a lot of my counterparts, really, this is the first time they're ever dealing with the military. So they didn't know what to expect. So that was thing one. Thing two was, um, I think, you know, Stan McChrystal's experience was very much colored by the fact that there was a leak of his assessment of the force requirements in Afghanistan. And so it was all over the front page of the Washington Post, the New York Times, before it ever came to either the Secretary of Defense or the President. So President Obama felt very much jammed and that his decision space had been narrowed by this. And that kind of was a breach of trust it wasn't General McChrystal's fault. He didn't leak it, but somebody did. And that breach of trust, I think, kind of uh, colored uh, the civil-military relations um, for the rest of of that term. And so then when you started working at the Pentagon, this was in an era that the nature of warfare was rapidly changing. It's asymmetric. There are blurred lines. You're no longer fighting against enemies in uniform. And Warfare operations have become more and more secret. Uh, lots of use of special operations and cyber warfare and drone strikes. How should civilians evaluate the military in this era of highly classified information? And how do we balance that need for transparency and being open to allow the military to be held accountable by the citizens? How do we balance that transparency against the need for security and secrecy? Yeah, it's a it's a challenge that people wrestle with. Um, I think, in general, erring on the side of transparency tends to be to serve our interests and is more consistent with our values as a democracy. Um, but there are some things that have to be secret, and and sometimes those things it's very important from. Um, a, an adva- a military advantage perspective vis-a-vis a, an adversary. It may be an important aspect of deterrence so that there's certain things you don't reveal until you're really trying to influence the immediate calculus of an adversary. Um, but I think um, when there are legitimate secrets, then it really puts a huge uh, importance on the role of Congress to exercise their uh, constitutional oversight responsibilities, um, because the fewer people who are going to know about this, the more important it becomes that those in Congress who have a right to know and who have the clearances to know and are in a position uh, to know, uh, need to know, that they actually exercise that oversight uh, function uh, uh, seriously. So with the Pentagon having not held a press briefing in hundreds and hundreds of days, is this a good time for Congress to step up and, and conduct that kind of oversight? Um, absolutely. And I think the Pentagon should be doing press briefings on a regular basis. You know, 90% of what the Pentagon does, it can talk about and it should talk about with the American people. There are only certain things that we really need to keep classified for national security reasons. A lot of our classmates here at the policy school are very interested in the field of like international development, international economics, peace building. Um, international aid. 
And one of the things that comes up a lot in those kinds of classes is the role of the military and how much the military should be involved, um, if it should be involved at all, if it should be taking the lead on those kinds of efforts. How should we evaluate the, the role of the military in terms of the United States efforts abroad to yeah. build peace? And Well, I think, I mean, there are times when the military has to create the security environment and the stability for development to even, you know, begin to happen. Um, but there, you know, in most cases, the development expertise that is needed to be successful in these situations does not reside in the U.S. military. It's in USAID. It's in the NGO community. It's in parts of the State Department. But what happens is sometimes you have a situation where there are the U.S. there there isn't a U.S. presence except for the military. You may have a, a special operations team way out in the middle of nowhere. They're the only Americans there. And so giving them the ability to do a little bit of good for a local village or what have you may also may contribute to force protection. It may contribute to the success of their mission and so forth. And then you have a situation like Afghanistan where we had, you know, during the surge, an extensive military presence. But it was very difficult for AID and State Department to show up in force. So you might have one AID person and an entire battalion of the U.S. Army working together. And that's a problem of how we resource our national security. We have one very well-resourced instrument, um, the military, and diplomacy and development are grossly under-resourced. And even it's been gotten even worse in recent years. So if you think of it as a three-legged stool, you're not it's not going to be, it's not balanced. Why is it, do you think that that imbalance has come out so much? I think part of it is the politics of the color of money. So if you're in Congress and you vote for a dollar, an extra dollar for the military, that's a patriotic act. If you vote for an extra dollar for AID, some will see that as, well, why are you sending money abroad when we need to develop here at home? We have infrastructure, we have education, healthcare, all these domestic needs. And then you have um, the State Department where people don't appreciate how critical, robust diplomacy to our success writ large and, and even to um, translating military gains into enduring political outcomes. And, and too often funding the State Department's viewed as, well, oh, why would you just build more bureaucracy? So there's a tremendous lack of uh, appreciation for not the, the individual contributions of state and AID, but also the, the importance of the synergies they can have with the military when, them, when they are properly resourced. Besides just recognizing the problem of under-resourcing, do you think there's maybe like a policy solution to try to, to combat that and, and change that? I do. I think it, it, you, if you had had a, a different administration and different leaders, you know, someone like President Obama, someone like a Hillary Clinton, um, and there are, I can name a number of Republicans who've been very supportive of development and humanitarian assistance as well. Um, but you need a leader who understands the value of these tools in terms of American influence and impact abroad in ways that directly affect the um, security of Americans. So turning away from the, this kind of broader discussion on military involvement with peace building development and, and getting back to more personal level, I was wondering if you could talk about 
the hardest thing that you did during your time at the Pentagon? Oh boy, that's a tough one. Um, I think the hardest thing for any leader is holding people accountable. And um, in my time, I had to thank a few people for their service and let them go because they were not able to deliver on the president and the secretary's um, goals. And they were, you know, they, and it was too important to allow that to continue. Uh, and so needed to, you know, bring in a team that could deliver. And that, that's probably the hardest thing. Uh, actually, I'll, I'll amend that. One thing that was harder, um, and that was since we had a role in helping the secretary oversee deployments and military operations, I felt very strongly that my staff and I should go to Dover Air Force Base and to be present in receiving the bodies of soldiers and sailors and airmen and Marines who had, you know, made the ultimate sacrifice for the policies that we were advising on and writing. And I wanted people to understand at a very visceral level the real potential costs. This is not a game. It's not just a policy debate. You know, real Americans are going to put their lives on the line and sometimes lose their lives for the policies that we're writing. And that was talk, you know, going up there, talking to the families, seeing the costs in very real terms. That's probably the hardest thing emotionally. And but it was very, very important for us all to do to stay grounded in the reality of what the, you know, the impacts of some of these policies were. Um, on that issue that you just mentioned about sometimes having to thank people for their service and let them go. Secretary Gates wrote in his memoir about some of the personnel decisions and personnel changes that you were involved with. And he said that he hoped that that would lead to a broader trend of civilian policymakers being able to hold the military accountable, not just for misconduct or legal violations, but also for their performance. How do you think that's played out since your time at the Pentagon? You know, I, I don't think it's as consistent or sort of systematized as it should be. I think there's a, there is a sense sometimes of careerism in the Pentagon, both on the civilian and military side, not the politicals, but the civil service or the, the, the military, which says, well, if I, I haven't done anything wrong, um, I should be fine. And sometimes in certain situations, you really have to ask, you know, given the stakes involved, and this was the case in Afghanistan, do we have the best possible person in the right position to lead this, given the importance of the United States, given the human cost and financial costs that we're about to put on the table? Do we have the best person? Not just like, is there a person who is good and didn't do anything wrong, but do we have the best person to deliver this? And that was, I know, a very hard choice for Secretary Gates, but I think switching out commanders was was the right decision. And I, I do think that when the you know the stakes for the nation are high, people should take that risk to make those decisions. You know, one of the things I do a lot of engagement with with uh, officers who are becoming generals or admirals, and one of the things I've said to them is, you spend a career sort of amassing political capital. 
at some point you have to flip the switch and say, I'm a leader now. I have influence. I can have impact. How am I going to spend that capital? You can't take it with you. You know, you got to spend it down to zero or maybe even into deficit. But what are the things that matter? How, what kind of change are you going to try to make? What kind of impact are you going to try to have as a leader? As China's role grows greater on the global stage, you want to stay up to date on the issues most pressing to China, both domestically and internationally. Check out the Just China podcast for in-depth analysis on recent headlines and investigative reports on Chinese matters that affect our globalized world. We are Just China. Find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy your podcast listening. In the intro of our podcast, we have a quote by President Eisenhower in his farewell address when he talks about our need to guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence by the military-industrial complex. And in America, there's a spectrum of people who think, on the one hand, that the military is too big and it's this war machine. But on the other hand, we also need American companies who are effective at delivering technology and platforms so the military can properly carry out its missions. I'm curious how you think citizens should evaluate whether the military-industrial complex has grown too large and acquired that unwarranted influence. You know, I think one of the things that a metric you can use to evaluate this is whether when DOD tries to make a a big change of direction, as we are trying to do right now, does um, the Congress allow it to make the hard choices that would divest from legacy systems that have a lot of people invested in their success and move towards new capabilities that may not have those well-developed constituencies? So let me give it a little more, be more specific. We're in a period where we are shifting to have to worry about the potential for great power conflict, certainly competition, And there has to be a big emphasis on deterrence. And deterring a rising China, deterring a resurgent Russia, means that we have to really invest in a new kind of warfare, and we have to invest in a new set of technologies and capabilities, whether it's quantum computing or artificial intelligence, better cybersecurity, new forms of electronic warfare, directed energy. I mean, you can go on and on down the list. But the the force that we've sort of honed and perfected for counterterrorism and counterinsurgency over the last uh, nearly two decades is not the force we need to deter conflict with China and Russia. So we need industry as partners in making that shift. And um, some of the big traditional uh, defense contractors are trying to make that shift, but a lot of this technology is going to come from the commercial sector and from smaller, sometimes even startup companies. And so the name of the game is how do you enable the Department of Defense to really access that cutting-edge commercial technology and adapt it to military purposes and move forward. And there are lots of different ways to do that. That's one of the things that WestExec is trying to help with. How do you help these smaller cutting-edge technology firms actually navigate the DOD and national security space? So I don't think we should look at industry as, you know, the enemy or just, you know, sort of feeding at the trough of the DOD budget. Yes, there are times when industry influences Congress to make bad decisions, 
um, but they're also a critical partner in in getting the capabilities that will enable us to actually deter and, if necessary, prevail in a future conflict. On that topic of investment in emerging technologies and startups, um, we read an article uh, two years ago or so about a lot of Chinese companies' efforts to sort of get get involved and invest in American defense startups, mm-hmm. emerging technology. And then just a couple of days ago, there was an initiative announced by the DOD, um, mm-hmm. this like trusted capital marketplace. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Trusted capital marketplace kind yep. of geared towards um, combating some of that. Do you think that yep. there is enough attention being paid to that sort of economic realm in defense policy? I think the attention is just now starting to really become properly focused. It turns out there are there is a lot of Chinese um, money in our supply chain, um, both in the defense realm and in the commercial technology realm. You know, I think you have to draw distinctions here. Some of that money is passive investment, meaning you have a Chinese investor, they want a good return on investment. The startup world seems like a good place to go, but they have no board seat, they have no decision rights, they have no uh, access to non-public intellectual property. That kind of investment is fine. It's just it's money in the bloodstream of Silicon Valley or Route 128 or, or whatever. The issue is when they get a, a seat at the table for decision making, when they have access to non-public IP, because then the worry is that that intellectual property can be transferred um, in some way. And in, the, in China, there's this doctrine of civil military fusion, which means that any interesting commercial advances in technology that have a military application must be shared with the PLA, the Chinese military. And so that that is of concern. So I think the DOD and others are appropriately concerned. I think we have to kind of carefully work through the new laws governing foreign investment, this trusted um, kind of partner approach, uh, and so forth. So I, I do think this is an important area that needs, you know, we need to go down this path. So you mentioned West Exec for a moment and the work you're doing with West Exec, trying to help industries navigate the the military complex um, and, and trying to build technologies and platforms to help the military. At the same time, there's been a little bit of criticism against West Exec and other kinds of companies uh, for being part of this revolving door effect where you have officials from the Pentagon now going out to work and consulting and advisory, which in turn just help other industries uh, and contractors get more contracts and jobs from the DOD. I do think um, we it's something we have to keep an eye on, but I also think that it comes in different flavors and some of them are acceptable and some of them are not. I mean, what we're doing is, you know, we hear an urgent need from the Department of Defense, and they don't know how to find the technology in the commercial sector. We try to be technology scouts and find the companies that are most able to get that capability to the warfighter quickly. And we do, all we do is make the match, and then we're done. We are not lobbying. We're not influencing. We're not, in, you know, trying to make sure that somebody does a contract. We're just trying to matchmake um, so that, you know, if our if we ever um, encounter, you know, a great power adversary, the folks we've put in harm's way 
have the best equipment and the best technology that our whole country has to offer. Um, so that I think is a positive. You know, if 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 having the experience inside the department enables us to may help be that matchmaker outside more effectively, I think that's a good thing. I do think the department and all administrations have been very careful. They have ethics rules. You know, there are periods for two years where you I could not talk to my former colleagues. I still can't work on specific items that I worked on when I was in government. I have to recuse myself. Um, so it's something to be very carefully monitored and managed. Um, but I actually think the experience and the relationships can be leveraged for the good of the country rather than just for, you know, people uh, pursuing personal gain. So there's, there's a difference between just trying to make a genuine connection for a DOD need versus just trying to make money off the DOD. But still underlying all of that, we have a system of checks and balances in place to make sure people are doing things appropriately. Yeah, absolutely. And you have to, there's all kinds of things you have to disclose and, and that's appropriate. I mean, I think, I think we want to make sure that people are not um, using, you know, using their connections just for personal gain. So after the 2016 election, it was pretty widely reported that Secretary Mattis had asked you to serve as his uh, deputy. And we've already talked in other interviews and stuff about why you didn't end up taking that role. Um, we were kind of wondering if you could talk about that issue just more broadly, though, for civilian policymakers and public servants who want to serve in government but aren't sure whether they can do it under like a certain administration like what kind of framework do future public servants need to be able to think about that that decision that you had to make in 2016 well i think i mean i felt a tremendous sense of duty you know that if asked to serve the propensity is always to say yes and I had tremendous, um, you know, respect for Jim Mattis. We'd worked together closely before. He, you know, I thought the world of him. But what what made me pause was I felt that on just about every policy issue that Trump had talked about in the campaign, I was not aligned. And 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 so the question is, could I serve? a president whose policies I did not believe in, or would I simply be like, as I jokingly said, you know, Hamlet on the Potomac, you know, to, to resign or not to resign. I mean, like, you don't want to be having that conversation with yourself every day. And, and the moment of clarity for me was actually uh, when President Trump surprised Jim Mattis by announcing the travel ban at his swearing in. And I was so appalled by the travel ban. I was like, that was like, okay, no, now it's clear. I can't, I can't be part of this. So, but I think people really have to do a moral stock taking. I do think having a sense of duty is great. Choosing a great boss is important, critical. Uh, but at the end of the day, you have to know whether you can live with yourself being part of a larger uh, effort. And I just, I just couldn't get there. One of the, the event that you just talked about, the signing of the travel ban, Dr. Shockey in our first episode said that that was the absolute nadir for her in terms of civil military relations recently. Yeah. Um, and it's part of this kind of broader narrative that we've talked about a lot um, with the politicization of the military, um, mm -hmm. appropriating 
military service members and military yes. backdrops for political ends. Um, are, is that something that you're concerned about? Very concerned about it. I think, you know, when you see retired general officers speaking at political uh, national conventions, you know, you had Mike Flynn for uh, at the, you know, Republican National Convention last time, you know, leading chants of lock her up. You had, you know, John Allen, who was much better behaved and a gentleman, um, but was, you know, in a political role as a retired general officer. And I think, I think for most Americans that they look at someone who's a retired flag or general officer, and their first name is going to always be general or admiral. And so the fact that they're retired uh, doesn't really make much of an impression. I think one of the strengths of our military in a democracy is that it is outside of politics. It stays out of politics. It supports the Constitution, not a particular political party, not a particular leader. That is critical to the success of our system. And I think it get the, it gets starts to erode when we have military people showing up in political roles. Admiral Mike Mullen said on this podcast that retired flag officers just need to stay out of politics. They need to stay silent. Uh, but Admiral Stavridis on our podcast has said the opposite, that he thinks it's totally okay for retired flag officers to participate in politics because he believes the American public is sophisticated enough to understand the difference between retired and active duty. What's your take on, on that dichotomy between those two beliefs? And also, if I could follow up your take on the dichotomy and then also just like what role can retired general officers play in the political system or do they need to just like go away? You know, I, I think the re- retired uh, general officers and, uh, uh, and flag officers are an incredible national resource. And I think it's entirely appropriate for them to advise candidates, um, to help, you know, uh, be resources for um, political leaders even to serve in appointed positions um, on occasion. I mean, when Mattis was appointed uh, Secretary of Defense, a reporter asked me, are you comfortable with this four-star general being appointed as Secretary of Defense? And I said, well, do you remember the last time this happened? He sort of looked at me. I said, 70 years ago with George C. Marshall. I think once every 70 years is probably okay. (laughs) But this is not something we should make a habit of. So I draw a distinction, though, between you know, general officers contributing to advising civilians and even being in, occasionally being in some appointed positions as opposed to becoming part of a political campaign uh, uh, them, themselves. Now, you do have a situation where after a decent interval, some people tr- uh, go to run for office. We've had one of the largest groups of veterans now ever elected to Congress, you know, post, uh, at least in the post 9-11 period. I think that's a good thing. So there's, I don't agree with either extreme. I think it's, it's finding the appropriate middle ground, but I think we have to do this very, very carefully to protect the institution of the military from being politicized. So there are many policy students here at the Harris School who will one day go into public service and policy, and they might not have anything to do with national security or defense, but they could still be very influential at the federal or state or municipal level. What's one thing that you want them to know about the military? I have found that the military is full of altruists 
who are focused on serving a higher purpose, who are focused on the nation's mission, and who really sort of fall in that tradition of putting something larger than themselves ahead of their own interests. I think it's as a as a group of people, it's an extraordinary group of people. One of the things I enjoyed most in the Pentagon was not only the mission, but the people that I got to work with. So I think I would say appreciate that and find a way to get to know them. One of the things that worries me about our civil military relations is that fewer than 1% of our population serves um, and fewer than I think it's like 5 or 10% even know someone in the military. And um, it's this revered institution, incredibly important to our national security, but we need to work to kind of bridge that gap and make sure that that it's not a, a mystery. It's not a something we don't understand um, on the civilian side, that we, we make our effort not just to thank someone for their service in the airport, but to actually reach out and uh, get to know someone and engage with them. Well, Ms. Flournoy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. We really appreciated all your insights and your time. Great. Thank you, and good luck with the podcast. Thank you. Take care. All right. Thanks for joining us today on Thank You for Your Service. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at TYFYS underscore podcast. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you'll get our next episode as soon as it's released. Thank You For Your Service is produced by Haz Yano, Ashwarya Kumar, and Mary Martha McClay. Special thanks to Lieutenant Alberto Ramos. This podcast is a production of the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts and is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of Defense or any other military entity. I'm Thomas Krasnation. And I'm Nick Pereso. See you next time. Chicago, the Windy City, the city of broad shoulders, the second city, is complicated. Known for its legacies of segregation and political corruption, Chicago has a lot to grapple with. On Chicagoland, we bring you conversations with activists, journalists, politicians, and others who are working to address these issues. You can find Chicagoland wherever you listen to podcasts. From University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts, this is Chicagoland. Chicagoland.